1: Hey there, it's Michael Costa from The Daily Show on Comedy Central. Ever wonder what happens behind the scenes or want to catch some extended interviews? Well, now you can. Listen to The Daily Show, Ears Edition podcast for full episodes, extended content, and a whole lot more. The Daily Show, Ears Edition is available wherever you get your podcasts. Hey, welcome to Beyond the Scenes, the podcast that goes deeper into segments and topics that originally aired on The Daily Show with Trevor Noah. Look, this, this is what you got to think of this podcast as, all right? This podcast is like a full stack of pancakes drizzled with maple syrup. You just can't have one. You know, you'd be at brunch and then you order an extra plate for the table so you can share it with all your friends. That's what we are. Now, I'm Roy Wood Jr. and we're here to talk about a piece that I did in 2017 called Black Eye on America on Black Twitter. Roll the clip! For decades, the black barbershop has been the epicenter of black cultural discussion. But the internet has changed things. Let me introduce you to Black Twitter. Black Twitter is an entire now, I think we need somebody more qualified. Let's go with Jamila Lemieux, executive, writer, and most importantly, black person. Jamila, what is black Twitter? It's
0: just really an extension of how we communicate in our neighborhoods, and our barber shops, and our churches, and our schools. It is our village. Think of Black Twitter as Harlem. Black folks made it cool, and now white people trying to move in. What we do on social media, and of course, we over-index and we use it more than anybody else, and we use it on mobile, which means we have it, you know, by our side 24 hours a day.
1: That's right. While we make up just 12% of the U.S. population, 25% of American Twitter users are Black, and they're three times more likely to post daily on Twitter than white people. Today, I'm joined by fellow FAMU alumni and Associate Professor in Media Studies at Northeastern University, Madam Meredith D. Clark. Welcome to Beyond the Scenes. How you doing today?
0: I'm doing well. Thank you for
1: having me. Well, thank you. Thank you for being here. Also joining us is a brother who is a writer at the Griot, and he does a lot of hard work on the ground, and he also starts up a lot of mess on Twitter, and you know, every now and then have them folks mad. He dropped knowledge, and then he'll pivot right into having them mad and starting some mess. If it's anybody who knows about engaging with black Twitter, it's the homie Michael Harry. Michael, how you doing,
2: man? I'm great, man. Thanks for having
1: me. I appreciate you all for being here. Now, let's go ahead and be real about this. We know what type of show we own. We know what type of audience The Daily Show is. That's part of why we did the Black Twitter piece at the time when conversations around blackness were starting to, you know, really permeate, you know, on social media a lot more. So, Meredith, for our listeners who don't know, can you define what Black Twitter is and explain the origins of it?
0: Absolutely. So I tell people there's no special knock. There's not a separate platform. There's not a special portal that you can go to to get <laughs> to Black Twitter. Uh, secret
1: club, Illuminati.
0: You know, there's there's no sh- secret handshake that will get you into Black Twitter. But there are two ways of thinking about it. The short version uh, that I tell people, Black Twitter is Black people on Twitter being Black on Twitter, like being our Black selves having a good time doing what we do. The long answer is that Black Twitter is a series of Black communities, of folks who are linked together, talking about things that are of concern to our various communities. And I really stress that plural idea of communities. So everything from racial justice, which we've seen a lot of conversations about, um, to what it's like to be on the dating market today. we got a lot of conversations about relationships. So every single way that people can come together and be connected uh, from Greek life and HBCU life to just being Black, living in a certain part of the country or a certain part of the world, that is Black Twitter.
1: Also food. There's a lot of food critiquing Definitely. on Definitely. Black Twitter.
0: Struggle plates.
1: If you post a plate of food, you, you, know, you might break your grandmama's heart because Black <laughs> Twitter pulls no punches.
0: None. Marikeisha could tell us. Okay.
1: <laughs> I mean, it, I'm honestly, not wrong. <laughs> it's interesting because, you know, there can be days on Twitter where it is something as simple as, I can't believe you put mayonnaise on a hot dog. And the next day it's should you spend $200 on a first date? And then the next day it's free Britney Griner. And all three of those conversations happen with the same level of ferocity and engagement. And God bless your soul. If you ever find yourself on the wrong side of some of that stuff, we call that getting ratioed. We'll break that down, you know, on another podcast. But You know, this piece was set, the piece that we did, it was we decided to set it in a barbershop because we felt like the barbershop, you know, in a sense for black culture is one of the many public squares that we have within the black community. And so, you know, you know, for Michael, you know, how is black Twitter a part of a history of community spaces and publications for black people together and share their stories?
2: Well, you know, in a sense, it is like the barbershop. You know, it's a, a communal place where we share uh, information, where we share our opinions, where we share, you know, what we think of everything going on around us. And, you know, although we like to think that this is new, you know, it goes back to the history of black media. You know, you're talking about the North Star, you're talking about black newspapers, black radio, all of that is part of the evolution that ended or has currently become black Twitter. You know, when you think about black radio, you know, white people were on the radio talking like this. And then all of a sudden, black people were talking the way they talked in jazz clubs on the radio. And it, it flowed outside of the radio. It it flowed into normal culture and, and became part of the lexicon of America. And in a sense, black Twitter is doing the same thing
1: is black twitter the right place to have these discussions because unlike the barbershop, unlike the beauty salon, unlike the church fellowship hall, this is a place where everyone can get in on the conversation and you know we talk a little bit about, you know, cultural appropriation. Does having these moments and enjoying things communally in a public forum make us more susceptible to people coming in who don't necessarily understand the origins of the conversation? Don't un- or or oblivious to the appropriation that they're doing?
0: Mm. I think it's it's a little bit of both. You know, um, there is a certain level of resistance that I think about that is taking place, whether we are willing participants in that resistance or not, but showing up and being ourselves and bringing the whole of our experiences to this platform is one way that by default Black people are resisting the the pressures and the expectations, the norms, that we do keep those conversations quiet, that we keep the family business inside the house, um, and that we don't engage in the same ways that we would with each other in enclave spaces in a very public way. The downside of that, unfortunately, in many cases is that people extract our conversations, just as you said, without context, uh, without any sort of real connection to what is being discussed and they often do it for profit for clout for their own sort of privilege on the platform and so you'll see things that black twitter talks about one day and suddenly it's a trend it's it has this agenda disrupting (laughs) function and the news media is all over it as though it's something that journalists discovered in and of themselves when in fact it's people swooping into our conversations you know the the old thing that we used to say back in the 90s getting the kool-aid don't know the flavor (laughs) <laughs> um, it, it's common. We're we're sort of used to that. We've seen it in everything from our music and, and what we create um, to our intellectual production and the same things happening on the platform.
1: We talked in season one of Beyond the Scenes about people who steal from, you know, black TikTokers and how the things that they do and the trends that they create are not properly, you know, they're not compensated for a lot of that stuff. But, you know, we can go back, I think, was it 2014 or 15? with. Um the girl Peaches on fleek.
0: Yes, Miss Peaches. This young Monroe. woman.
1: Yeah, Peaches yeah. Monroe.
0: Yep. Eyebrows
1: on fleek, and everybody was saying on fleek, but you telling me can't nobody figure out that it was that young lady who I said. This girl. Really?
0: Right, right. Like the damn Daniel guys, you know, they they had deals with Vans and all of this other stuff, and IHOP comes out with pancakes on fleek, and everybody's brand has something that's on fleek, but no one's cutting this young woman a check. And that's that's sort of the downside. Folks are like, you know, Twitter's terms of service for so many years said, what you put here, if you have a public account, is open and accessible to everyone. The problem with that is, for so many years, Black folks have been taking, well, our labor has been taken from us and uh, repurposed. And, and we see the same thing happening with Black Twitter.
1: Is Twitter a place, though, Michael, where, I guess, what Black Twitter, because... You talked about one time we we got into a conversation online about actors who were black famous, where you have reached the peak level of stardom with black people. But a white person is like, I don't quite know who you are exactly. But every black person knows you knows you. So when you look at something like that, right, like we talk about like that conversation being so inclusive Does it rub you the wrong way when you see other people that you know are not necessarily of our culture jumping in and joining those types of conversations that are very much, you know, family discussions?
2: I think if you're having that discussion right on Twitter, then like my perception is that you have to care more about what white people think if you're going to be mad at that. Right. Mm -hmm. Like I am when I talk to black people, then I am looking at the responses of black people And I know that the people outside of the culture who respond don't know what they're talking about. It's not like if it's a doctor going and asking somebody about diabetes and a dude on the corner offers an opinion. The doctor doesn't take that opinion into consideration because he knows (laughs) that that person didn't go to medical school. And that's the same thing. The way I feel like, oh, there's certain people like I, I play a game with myself sometimes where I'll tweet something that I know only black people care about or know know what I'm talking about. And it's funny to me to see the white people trying to figure out what we're talking about. And so to be mad at those things, right? Because it's on Twitter, you're basically posting it onto a public billboard or a bulletin board. If you're gonna do that, you have to know that white people are gonna see it and you know white people are going to say something about it or respond. And it's up to you whether or not that weighs in to has some value to you, or is just something that somebody's saying as they walk past this billboard. But so then, how do we bridge the gap? How do we bridge
1: the gap from Black Twitter being this place that drives the narrative of conversation? Especially, with, oh my God, when we talk about whatever show is the hottest show, live tweeting that was. Yeah. Scandal, you can dig digging the crates to go all the way back to Papa Pope memes and all of that type of stuff, and insecure and like all of these live viewing experiences. The new edition movie, oh my god, that was oh, that was a <laughs> nice two three days. <laughs> to be so we know that Black Twitter is a driver of culture, uh, but does the media at large using the conversations that happen on Twitter, you know, trending topics and stuff like that. Has that made journalists more lazy and taking the temperature of what the public at large is into or vibing with?
2: So there's two sides to that. Right. Because, you know, journalism is mostly a white profession. Right. Um, I think, you know, in the major News organizations—it's at most six percent black. So for most of history, what we call mainstream, which is translated as white media, would only consider, you know, or include the opinions of white people because they weren't no black, no weren't no white people telling the truth about black people, and there were no black people in the the newsroom saying, "Hey, you you might have this wrong." And so in a sense, you know, they could go on Twitter now and see what black people are saying about a certain thing that they might not have access to uh, in a newsroom or as just as a white person. Like, you know, one of the things I do, like when I covered Ferguson or Baltimore, right? And it's a thing that I do when I cover anything that happens in a black neighborhood. Now, y'all would know this. If you go to the store, it's always one store in that neighborhood where you could just go sit in front and there's people in front of that store who's just hanging out. And if you talk to them, you can get the, the temperature and gauge the temperature or the climate of that neighborhood. Right. Correct. White people can't do that. White people don't even know that they can. And then if they go, you know, it's a white man holding a microphone. Versus, you know, somebody who looks like them, who talks like them, who knows what to ask them, who is going to be sympathetic. So there are two sides, right? In some uh, aspects, Twitter gives us a voice that we wouldn't have never had in mainstream media. And on the other side, it does make, you know, give white journalists more access than they would have had as white journalists. So it kind of prevents newsrooms from you know, hiring black people because they can say, oh, you could just go ask somebody on Twitter, take a Twitter poll instead of just going to a black neighborhood. We don't gotta hire a black dude to go look into the Black stuff and, and report the Black news.
0: As a journalism professor, one of the things that I teach my students all the time is that you, it's like the analogy that Michael made earlier. You don't necessarily listen to the guy who didn't go to medical school about something and just take what the guy on the corner is saying at face value, right? And that's akin to what I see with taking these tweets out of context, embedding them in a story, or making them the story. You know, there's a big difference between source development and then just straight-up co-optation. It's possible for journalists to get on Twitter to actually develop sources on Twitter, to reach out to people. You know, the DMs are there. You can reach out and say, hey, I see you tweeting about this thing. Can we have a conversation about it? Um, and effectively reach more Black people than they would with shoe leather reporting that they're supposed to be doing, but maybe don't have the time to do. But to just simply take what you see or observe what you see and report on that, That's what led us to a lot of mis- and disinformation in communities and around the 2016 election. It's what leads to a warped sense of what Black people in America are experiencing today. Because you're going to get on Black Twitter all kinds of Black people from all different walks of life. If you show up with one narrative out of that, then you've done a major disservice to reporting on Black folks in America at large.
2: Y'all know if like, if somebody goes on Twitter and like Roy said something and I said something, you know, to a white person, it becomes, or to a white reporter, a lot of times it becomes- That's it. This is what
0: black people This is saying. what black people think.
1: <laughs> oh, my God. It's You know what I have to do now, Michael? I have to, when something breaks and I got a joke or I have an opinion, I have to wait 36 hours. I have to wait for those articles to run. Because if I make the joke about the thing and I'm just being silly- it's not what my intention was. It's how it's presented. The truth, right. ain't the truth. The truth is what people choose to believe. So when they go, people. oh, Perfect. This is a. This is a. This isn't as serious of an example, but this is a, a perfect example of what I'm talking about. They announced earlier this year that the Choco Taco was going to get discontinued, <laughs> and I made a quick tweet just. Just didn't even think. I'm watching Better Call Saul. Let me just tweet it. Choco Taco ain't that good. And the drumstick is terrible, too. Send. Phone down. Wake up the next morning and I'm in two or three different compilation tweet articles going, people are outraged. Roy Wood Jr. is very adamant. No, I wasn't. (laughs) That's not what... and the same thing can happen with, with political tweets. If I, make, if, if I say something about this election or this, per, we did, um, you know, we did a little sketch about Herschel Walker and the whole illegitimate children thing or whatever. And that got put in the article with the other Herschel Walker tweets. So now you have people in my DMs and I can only imagine what your DMs are like, Michael, because your ass be going in way harder than me half the time. And you have people ready to jump on you about stuff. And I'm like, I was just tweeting.
2: Yeah, but you also have to understand, just like I was saying earlier, right? Those people don't know what they're talking about. Right. If they're just scanning tweets and see one of my tweets and include it in a compilation of tweets, they don't know what I'm talking about. Mm. They don't know about black people. They don't know about me. They don't know what, this, what I'm talking about, the subject that I'm talking about. And so, you know, in a sense, again, you have to ascribe To what white people say some level of importance to even care about that thing. Right. I do not care what white people are thinking when I'm talking to black people. Now, not not what white people are thinking, but when I'm talking to my people, Mm -hmm. the people who do not know what I'm talking about have no value in that conversation, though. Right. You know, like everybody black person knows, like you can it's certain cousins you can't sit next to at a funeral. It's not that they're making a mockery of the dead. It's just that they joke, crack jokes all the time. And, you know, if your mama look back there and see you, she's going to say you're being disrespectful to problem. the church, to God, to Jesus, to the dead person. But she was not listening to your cousin crack those jokes.
1: <laughs> and it was a good joke. Why they bury him in that jacket? That is That jacket <laughs> yeah. don't fit. You him. know he ain't <laughs> never had no
2: suit like that. Even on past his anniversary, now they got him dead. He's going to heaven. Going why, why you button
1: the jacket? Open the jacket up. <laughs> After the break, I would love to get into the ways that Black Twitter contributes to the counter narrative and pushes back against the stereotypes that mainstream media pushes. And also, you know, I want to unpack a little bit about the social justice side of black Twitter and the number of things that I believe were able to happen because there were people on the internet raising noise and raising hell. This is Beyond the Scenes, we'll be right back. Welcome back. We are talking about black Twitter. Now we've broken down what it is, how it's used, how people misuse it and some of the topics that are discussed on black Twitter. But Meredith, I want to get to the serious side of it now and how black Twitter is able to influence, you know, conversations. You know, you've often referred to, you know, black Twitter having the ability to to create a digital counter narrative and, you know, shift the way that black people are depicted In the mainstream media. What did you mean by that exactly? And how has Black Twitter helped help to contribute to that?
0: Yeah. So I talk about Black Twitter creating counter narratives because as a journalist and as someone who studies journalism and the way that we communicate, I think about how news media has the potential to shape our social realities. Right. So the issues of the day, the way that they're reported on, that's the way people understand them. And we know that to be true, uh, especially about black folks with the kind of coverage that we've gotten over the years, we see coverage about our communities that is generally crime-focused. When you see more than one Black face, they are either a public figure like a celebrity or a politician, or they're an athlete. We see those overrepresentations, And we see this coverage that gives you a singular narrative about Black people and Black life in America. What Black Twitter does is pushes back on those narratives, and it allows us to present multiple narratives all at the same time about our lived experience. Experiences. So everything from the way that we experience the workplace, right? We talked about um, one of the hashtags that's near and dear to my heart, Black in the Ivory. So what it's like to be Black in academia. But we talk about everything from our hair and what it means when someone touches it to what yeah. legislation that is going to impact our communities is like. I think one case that really stands out to me about Black folks encounter narrative is the assumption that all Black people are Democrats and willingly and enthusiastically voting Democrat, right? But then you saw out of Black Twitter a hashtag, like, girl, I guess I'm with her. The resignation that people had (laughs) in 2016. Like, yeah, Hillary Clinton. Around Hillary
1: Clinton. You know, we're we're not
0: excited about her candidacy, but if it's going to save America, which we tried to do, um, then we're going to vote for her. And so that's what I mean when I talk about digital counter narratives. The digital allows us to do it all in the same place at the speed of light uh, and in a number of different voices all at the same time. And that's really important to getting a more accurate picture of what our lives are like.
1: It has also become a place where there's been real reporting happening in real time. And so then it can't be spun by anybody in the media Um, about it. Ooh, I guess it's coming up on two years, Mike. Uh, post-Charlottesville and the rise of the, let me just call it, how, how are we going to spin this? Uh, the motivated public unpermitted removal of Confederate monuments across this nation was occurring in a lot of different spots. And um series of motivated, fine citizens were showing up to the local town squares and nine ropes to statues and getting them shits up out of there as they should have. And, you know, things in Birmingham got a little, you know, unsettled. And Michael, I remember you being one of the journalists who, like this concept of journalistically, I will go there and tomorrow you will have my report. But there's also... No, let me tell y'all right now before somebody take my phone, because the police might be tripping. Let me. De- How much has Black Twitter been an asset in making sure that, as a journalist, you're able to deliver the truth faster?
2: Yeah, well, so um, what Roy's talking about is I was arrested covering a protest over a Confederate monument and the Klan supposedly coming to show up. Everything was stripped from me, but luckily I had a. Watch an Apple watch on and was able to tweet that I've been arrested, and that was the only way that people knew I'd been arrested for covering a protest. They wouldn't believe I was a journalist. Mm-hmm. They wouldn't believe anything that I said. And it was Black Twitter that basically got me out of jail. Um, someone called the lawyer and literally, you know, bailed me out. So you know, it's it, it's important to activism. and when you think about it, right? It's important to justice. You think about the people who were convicted of Derek Chauvin being convicted of killing George Floyd. Well, the main reason he was convicted was because there was a bunch of black people around holding cameras. They would not have been holding those cameras and recording him if there was not a place for them to show that footage unfiltered. For the previous you know, 250 years, all we had was what the police told us, mm-hmm. right? I have been a journalist in a newsroom mm-hmm watching other journalists just copy and paste the police report yep. into an article about what happened at certain incidents yep. and now because of the transparency offered by Black Twitter we can counter those narratives of rioting or police brutality or many of the issues that black people have faced and white people simply wouldn't be active because they didn't believe us mm-hmm. Yeah, which also changes
1: the nature of reporting. On top of that, that's why that's why I always love when I see you know a black person who posted something good. When you look in the replies to the tweet, and it's like some news organization, "Hey, can we use this clip? This some this some good reporting right here? Is it? Or do you authorize us?" <laughs> <laughs> uh, when we talk about you know the hashtags that Twitter uses, which I think is a, an important. I don't like this about activism, but I understand why we need it. Therefore, it is important. Like Twitter has a way of boiling things down to a sentence or in Twitter's case. It's a hashtag. Like if we just go Black Lives Matter, Oscar, so white, everything can sit comfortably under that umbrella. I do think that some issues are a little more nuanced and it's like like abolish the police. If you ask 10 black people what they mean when they say abolish the police, you're going to get about three or four different constructs of what that concept is. So sometimes hashtags don't always give the nuance that I think a topic needs, but the hashtag brings attention and it starts the conversation. And in a lot of cases, it actually brings about some type of change. Meredith, like, could you talk a little bit about how those hashtags have contributed to action you know, offline?
0: Absolutely. So I talk about this um, as I write about it as the process of affirmation and reaffirmation. So when we tweet with these hashtags and someone responds to them in a number of ways, like the retweeting, the quote tweeting, the building on what we've said, that's affirmation. You know that someone else online has heard what you've said. Reaffirmation is what happens when those hashtags go offline and they are used to a certain end. I actually moved to Charlottesville the uh, the day after the so-called events of August 11th and 12th with the White Supremacist March.
1: Find people on both sides, yeah.
0: Man, listen, I wasn't very interested (laughs) in figuring that out uh, with my new neighbors, but one thing that carried over from online to offline were all these Black Lives Matter signs. I saw them everywhere and it was a way for people to sort of signal that I'm I'm one of the good ones, right? I'm an okay person. This wasn't me, this wasn't Charlottesville. And so in a number of ways, we see hashtags sort of doing the hard work of communicating to people what the aims of a particular slogan or a particular message are. In the case of something like defund the police or abolish the police, um, I don't think that you know, those have been as effective as they could have been. You can see how very quickly the message gets misappropriated, it gets misinterpreted, because when people talk about defund, they're not just simply talking about cutting off the budget numbers, but they are pushing you to have a conversation about what it would be like to redirect the millions of dollars that we spend in policing and over-policing Black and brown communities in particular, and put that back into the services that are needed in the community to make sure that we don't need to call police or to yeah. fortify if our can neighborhoods. can read, it's less crime. Exactly. If you got jobs, it's less crime. <laughs> exactly. I'm
1: sorry, keep, keep going.
0: Sorry. <laughs> you know, so no, that's it. That's it. That um, in so many ways, the hashtags have basically cut through the the bureaucracy and the conversations and have forced people to say, hey, this is a different direction that we should at least listen to or think about. There's another part of this conversation that we need to have.
2: I would argue that, like, you know, the stuff like defund the police and, like, people getting lazy and just wanting to tweet Black Lives Matter, those people were gonna do what they were gonna do anyway. Like, that's the something. people who just tweet Black Lives Matter and say that's their activism, they weren't gonna do anything for black people anyway. The people who are arguing against the hashtag defund the police, they are going to not support. Any effort to reform policing in America anyway, and deformed, defund the police is just the thing that they latched onto to, to cast the gate. And it could have been anything like, you know, the civil rights movements, were they were communists. Agitators. And the black power movement was anti-white, right? So whatever black people say, they're going to be a contingent of people who are saying the opposite. Those people are going to exist regardless of whether it's on Twitter or in a newspaper or on TV or on the radio. Don't. And so I don't think black people's uh, hashtags or turning white people negative, but I do think it is coalescing a group of people, of black people who's like, I thought I was the only one who thought we should defund the police. Like, I thought I was the only one who had the idea of decreasing police funding. And those people see like-minded people on the Internet, and it coalesces into a movement. So I think overall it's good because the negative people were going to be negative regardless of what the hashtag was. It was like, take a dollar away from the police. They would
0: have it. There was never going to
1: be a phrase. There was never going to be a magic phrase no. that pays no. that got them on board. Not ever. No. Okay, but then if we talk about the effectiveness of of hashtags, like if we just go with Brittany Griner and everything mm-hmm. that is, has that is transpired with Brittany Griner, and as we talked about in the first break, the media follows a lot of what black people be talking about, and then they present that as the national conversation on the thing. And sometimes it can be misinformation, sometimes y'all could just be pulling tweets about us talking about Beyonce or whatever, whatever, right? Mm-hmm. But then that same media is also the one that would listen to the ways that people were, you know, cause this is bigger than what people in the WNBA were doing, but then it was also black Twitter that was taking those clips and putting those clips out on social to build more awareness about what was happening with Brittany Griner and making sure that that conversation did not fall to the back page, you know, to the back page of, you know, newspapers and conversations. So, in a way, does that same media attention to black Twitter when it's stuff that it really ain't their business and they don't know, really know and they get it wrong. Does that same media attention to some degree help create momentum for a lot of these conversations? Like even like if you say like even if we don't go Britney Griner, we go further back with bring back our girls. You know, I'll be honest. That's one. When we talk about abduction, I was extremely educated by that hashtag. So. Does the attention that black Twitter gets from mainstream media in the case of activism, does it help?
2: Yeah, I think so. I think, you know, on the whole, right. Because, I mean, when we talk about journalism, we talk about news. It's just like music. It's just like art. It's just like every other thing in America. Like white people are going to follow what black people do. Like by the time they're talking about it, we've had the conversation. So, you know, in a sense, it amplifies the conversations that black people were having yesterday, today, and, you know, take this, you know, the conversation around police brutality, you know, a lot of people think, well, you know, since Obama, black people really came, became, uh, you know, obsessed and mad about police brutality. Martin Luther King was talking about police brutality in the, I have a dream speech, right? So in a sense, our conversation about police brutality has come to white people's attention because of the conversations we were having online, because of the hashtag Black Lives Matter, because we were posting those videos. Now they have evidence that it's not just, you know, a couple of people in Detroit and a couple of mad people in LA over Rodney King. It is a national thing that transcends geography and time and you know the police departments. It's a national problem. And I think that's what black Twitter and social media, black people on social media, give voice to our concerns.
0: Yeah, I think that the the contributions that black Twitter makes um, to, to national coverage of the issues that matter to us with things like Brittany Griner, that is one of the cases that's particularly nuanced because the message that we got from the federal government was that we didn't want to make a big fuss about this in case of some diplomatic issues, right? So there's this problem that we now have to navigate as Black folks, like how do we advocate for one of our own and make sure that her name stays on people's minds and make sure that people don't forget that she's there and that we need to bring her home but also not put her in danger. We're already dealing with the devaluation of Black life in our home country, right? And now we've got to deal with it as a diplomatic problem. We've basically all been deputized into the State Department at this point, Mm -hmm. that we are having to act as a diplomatic corps to at least get our news media to pay attention to this story and to continue to keep the focus on it. I think Black Twitter does an excellent job with that. And it's just as Michael said, you know, this is bringing up things that we have been talking about for years we've talked for years about our mistreatment when we visit other countries we may not have been arrested we may not be detained we not be maybe held by um a country that for a long time like as long as i've been alive has been considered an enemy of the united states how we got chummy with russia in the last few years i still don't understand um, no, you don't understand. You know, Trump, <laughs> yeah, uh, listen, I'm, I'm trying to be nice. I'm trying to be nice. But, you know, we, we have talked about this. We've talked about what it's like to be mistreated in another country and to know that the U.S. government is not necessarily going to come to your aid. And so now we're pushing people to have more of that conversation and to say this is not just about a high profile basketball star, a queer woman who is locked up in in Russia because of some trumped up charges. This is about what it is like to be black in this world and to know that even though y'all tell us that we're not grateful for being citizens here, you show us that you're not really invested in us being a part of America. And this is an example of that. And so it brings all of those nuances to the conversation and to the coverage in ways that we haven't been able to have those conversations before.
1: Talk a little bit, both of you, about the political influence that Black Twitter has had. You know, when we talk about Georgia flipping blue and a couple of years before that, Doug Jones taking old Roy Moore off the sticks in Alabama, and as an Alabamian, I know part of that happened because they were literally organizing, driving people to the polls, and all of the gerrymandered ass districts where the polling station was way off the city bus route. So, the influence that Black Twitter has on elections and its ability to get people registered to vote—you know—how much do you do we have? Here's here's the question. Here's here's a question of both of you: Do we have Barack Obama and Stacey Abrams without social media?
2: Oh, definitely not,
1: no. right? Um, Neither, not even, know, o- Obama maybe? Because he was like early, no. Obama was my space-ish.
0: No. He was a my No, no but,
2: no. so, so I was living in South Carolina when Obama ran in 2008 and I was covering him. There's no way, like, the black people in South Carolina would have even considered that a black man could be president if not for social media. Because, Everybody around them in South Carolina, like one of the most racist states in the country would have said, ain't no way, like they'll kill him first, right? Mm -hmm. But when we saw the momentum build online, remember, one of the things that social media does and black Twitter does is wipe away the constraints of having to depend on the narrative given by white people, right? So, you know, Hillary Clinton, remember, everybody thought that Hillary Clinton was the shoe in for it. that race, yeah, and Hillary thought it. <laughs>
0: Yeah, we all did. Right. (laughs) And the
2: only people who weren't saying it was like the people online saying, I think I'm going to just support this brother and see what's happening. And then we saw so many people do it that we saw that it was possible. And the same can be true with Stacey Abrams and definitely, you know, a a Democrat winning and becoming a senator in Alabama. Like no one would have thought that was possible. Black people, specifically black women in Alabama and They did that, and their organizing was done, a lot of it, online.
1: Warnock and Ossoff in Georgia as well. I'm sorry, Meredith. Go ahead.
0: Oh, yeah. No, I I wholeheartedly agree. And uh, even going back um, as far as Barack Obama's election, um, there are a number of case studies that look at how the Obama campaigns made effective use of social media messaging. And honestly, presidential campaigns and gubernatorial races and Senate races, congressional races, Those all follow a a certain part, a chapter or two of the Obama playbook, because what the Obama campaign showed was how you could directly connect with people who feel like they are disenfranchised, who know that they are disenfranchised, energize them and get them to be a part of the political process. That is the way that Barack Obama was able to win. He was able to push past um, sort of those people who were disenchanted and jaded with the systems as we knew it and get... Through on a message of hope. Hope? Are you kidding me? (laughs) Hope does not pay bills. Hope does not necessarily move people to take time off of work to go out and vote. So effective messaging and being able to communicate with people where they are used to receiving messages and also where they see those messages supported by people they know and trust, that is what makes the difference. And that is why we were able to see uh, some victories in Georgia with Georgia flipping blue, uh, with mobilizing voters in Alabama. But I think that it is short-sighted to say that that. That is the only driver. And, you know, we can look at gerrymandering and and all of the redistricting that's being done now and see exactly where the next part of the playbook has to come in into play.
1: Let's talk for a second here just, you know, about people who try to infiltrate Mm -hmm. these conversations and influence and change them. You know, it's one thing to have bots, but then we also have people that try to permeate these conversations and pretend to be black and they try to talk with, you know, little black slang. They try to put a little, as E-40 would call it, put a little slang which on their conversation. Um, How much of a threat are those types of people to the conversations at large happening on black Twitter?
2: Uh, Not much, because like black people know, like you know when it's a white person pretending to be black, Um, you can tell. (laughs) And then, you know, Oh, when they try to spread disinformation, you can tell when it's, you know, a person who is susceptible to to disinformation is going to be susceptible to any kind of disinformation. Right. But the people who, you know, are smart, like you on the Internet when you're looking at Twitter. Right. You can go Google everything somebody tells you. So, you know, I always say, man, like you got to be able to distinguish between the dumb people and the smart people because there is no font, special font for dumb people, right? (laughs) There's no stupid font. Um, You know, it's the same size and the same, uh, (laughs) it's not italicized or anything as the people who know things, right? But the good thing is you're on the internet, right? And it's not like that opinion or that disinformation or that stupid thing that people say is not you know, sandwich between something that a smart person says or something said by somebody who actually knows things. And and I always tell people, like, why don't you just talk to people, look for people who know things and let's take their information on the subject in which they know. Because, like, you know, there's like I love LeBron James and I think he is one of the smartest basketball players in the world. But I'm not listening to LeBron James. Give me financial advice because LeBron James got a billion dollars. Right. So listen to smart people who know things about the things they are talking about.
0: Mm-hmm.
2: Mm-hmm. <laughs>
1: like the old addicts, you don't take recipes from skinny people. Hello. You never heard uh, <laughs> Yes,
0: exactly. One thing that Michael brings up is. Um, that I appreciate, but I also sometimes have some trouble with like, you can find anything on the internet. And one thing that we are now seeing a lot of problems with is although you can go and you can verify information that you find, you really have to be careful about that verification because there are folks who spend their whole lives creating information sub ecosystems where they put out info that helps confirm the misleading beliefs that you are beginning to accept. right? But one thing about Black Twitter, and I think that sort of um, inoculates us against this, is if you look at the structures of Black Twitter and how Black Twitter really came to be, it was first people were there because people that they knew were there. And if you go back to that level of personal communities, when someone is spitting misinformation and you start talking to other people in your life, away from the keyboard, offline, about what they are spitting, that's where you start running into some of the dissonance that makes you go search out the information that you need to find out what the truth is. And Sophia Noble's book, her Algorithms of Oppression, she talked about very extensively how you can't just tell folks to go Google something because Google's an ad company, right? They get paid to bring you information based on how different subscribers are turning over ad dollars. So we really have to, to take some care with people. And I think about that specifically with folks who are older and folks who are younger. You know, my mom had questions for me about 5G, and I had to sit down and have a patient conversation with her, a non-judgmental one, about what this was all about, even though people in her social groups were talking about things they heard on the internet. I also have to have the same sort of conversations with my 10-year-old niece about what she Sees on the internet and what is real and what is not, and that even though you can go to a website and find something that says XYZ, that may not necessarily be so. So, we have to talk about um, some of that information and parsing it and making sure that it is what it purports to be as well.
1: To that point about misinformation, after the break, we're going to bring this conversation home. Michael, I want to talk to you about your book that you've written that is all about giving people the real information, the real history. This book so real already it's probably already banned. CRT. Are you on the ban list yet? If not, uh, it's I gonna be coming. Not, man, but it's
0: coming. <laughs>
1: <Yeah>. <laughs> That's how you know it's good, because they're trying to ban it. Uh beyond the scenes. We'll be right back. Hey there, it's Michael Costa from The Daily Show on Comedy Central. Ever wonder what happens behind the scenes or want to catch some extended interviews? Well, now you can. Listen to The Daily Show, Ears Edition podcast for full episodes, extended content, and a whole lot more. The Daily Show, Ears Edition is available wherever you get your
2: podcasts.
1: Bringing it home, we're talking about, you know, Black Twitter. I want to talk about the future of it in a second, but first, uh, Meredith. Uh, what what do they say? What do they say on Clubhouse? I want to dovetail oh, if, I can, if I could, if I could piggyback off of something. <laughs> no doesn't. piggybacking. There are
0: no <laughs> piggybacks over here. You can expand, um, you can expand.
1: We talk about seeking truth, seeking understanding about what our history is and how many different digital potholes have been set up to obstruct us from getting those truths. And Michael, you're, you know, you're fighting back against that, you know, personally, you know, you're using black Twitter to educate people about, you know, these untold stories of American history. The book is black. I'm going to say it black as fuck history, the unwhitewashed story of America. But for the title, because I know the publisher can't put as fuck. So they put black AF history and it's coming out in January of twenty three. What was your breaking point? You go, you know what? Damn, um, I got to write a book. I'm tired of all of this. <laughs> I'm sick of it. Y'all keep twisting and remixing the truth. Right, Where's my keyboard?
2: So um I was homeschooled. And so it wasn't until recently that, you know, when, when all these conversations about the Confederacy and all of this, and the founders and Jefferson, when all those started, I realized, oh, people just don't know stuff about history. Like, you know, I didn't know how little the average American knows about history. And then, like, it was a couple of years ago when I realized, oh, they learned about George Washington and Thomas Jefferson and John Adams and all that stuff and how great they were. And then, like, six, seven years later, they learned about slavery. Mm-hmm. And that's why they can't, like, comport that the founding fathers were also human traffickers. And so what this book is is the story of black people in America and so, we ain't talking about James Garfield's uh, political campaign. We're talking about what black people were going to, our perspectives, and the un the unerased stories that we've been missing from our history books. Like, for instance, like nobody, like I, when I used to ask people about head rights, and they always say, What was that? And I was like, Oh, y'all didn't know, like, the first people that came to America got 50 acres for every slave that they brought here. So people were thinking like, oh, the slaves came here to do the white people's work and to make them wealthy. And I was like, no, the slaves is what made the white people wealthy, right? Um, but nobody knows about head rights. And it was how the blue blood families of this country gained their wealth, not from owning the stuff that slaves produce, but the actual bodies of the slaves is what gave them their power and their intergenerational wealth that is still persists to this day so like that's what this book is about like these untold stories that like they just skipped over when you were in the sixth grade social studies class.
1: Meredith when we talk about that misinformation you know I am a product of public schools and when I think shout out to Birmingham Center Street Middle School Ramsey (laughs) High School. I know that white book publishers are part of the issue when it comes to misinformation and omissions from history. And CRT is boiling up now and they want to take more history out of the textbooks and refer to the enslaved. What what was they trying to refer to the slaves as in the Texas um, indentured servants, voluntary, involuntary immigrant. Uh, It's some remixed ass word to try to take the pain and the truth out of what actually happened. How do we create more fair representation of the contributions of black people in American history? And, you know, and and how and what role does entertainment play Mm. in that as well? Hollywood, you know.
0: Some of the things that we have to think of are using the tools that we have available to us. That is one thing that black people in the United States have done since time immemorial, and black people throughout the world. I specifically refer to our history in the United States uh, because when I wrote about Black Twitter, I used what the opening salvo was of the first black newspaper that was published in the United States. And that was, I my twist on it, it was we wish to plead our own cause, we wish to tweet our own cause. And so in the same way that Michael talks about this being, you know, just another medium, the facts are there. We have used every medium that has existed. Uh, to tell the stories as they were, not as people wanted them to be. So Black newspaper publishers wrote about what it was like to be Black in that era. They covered the civil rights movement when white newspapers would not want to. My hometown paper, the Lexington Herald-Leader, had to publish a front page apology in the early 2000s about their failure to cover the civil rights movement, or they neglected, actually is the word, that they Mm -hmm. neglected to cover the civil rights movement and apologized for that error. But we were there using our cameras, using newspapers, using magazines, radio, Even programs in church, right, to tell the story of our people in its entirety. That's one of the reasons I'm writing a book on Black Twitter to make sure that that history is there and that it's accurate. And so we use the tools that we have to present these narratives alongside the ones that people are told. They sometimes disrupt the narrative. They counter them. um, They give you a completely different picture or a more complete picture. And that is the way that we get down to that. We also refuse the way that people want to talk about our stories. So one of my personal commitments is to not say CRT. It is critical race theory. It is an actual theory. It applies to how we think about power and economics and race and all of those things working together. I don't take the shortcuts because that's what people do when they're trying to re the narrative. And I say we spell it out, we tell it how it is, and that is the way that we take back uh, our history and, and present the truth.
1: So as you write this book on Black Twitter, this would be a great place for us to end with the two of you. What does the future Of Black Twitter look like because we understand its power. We understand its worth now. You know, I am very much a Web 1.0 aged individual. I came up in the AOL chat rooms and then the Yahoo chat rooms, which had the voice feature. And then there was a little bit of MySpace and well, before I I skipped over Angel Fire and Black Planet, that was sprinkled in there as well.
0: Yeah. 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 You know, what you doing? Where fun. were you on in the dorms at
1: college? Uh, oh, no, I was in Gibbs Hall, but I went to the Coleman Library to get on the internet because <laughs> that dial-up that dial-up in the dorm was atrocious. My roommate Real. was always on the phone, long distance relationship, messing up Real. the internet. Where does it go, you know, I know for a minute during the shutdown there, are, you know, these introduce there's the, there's been the introduction Of apps like Clubhouse and Twitter Spaces, where you can have real time voice conversations and quasi TED Talk fireside chats. Sometimes they're ratchet, sometimes they're eloquent and very, you know, helpful conversations. But where do you all see the evolution, you know, Meredith, I'll, I'll start with you, you know, as you know, there was rumors that Elon Musk mm-hmm. was going buy Twitter and now mm-hmm. he, he might not, he may. Then there was rumors that Donald Trump might come back to Twitter. Then they're talking about adding a button where you could moderate and switch stuff up. If those things come true, any of those things come true and black people migrate from the platform, you know, where do we go? What, what happens next?
0: I mean, what happens next is what has always happened with Black people in any sort of technology, where the technology is, there will my people be also, <laughs> right? We are going to be wherever the web goes. Um, we were there in the beginning, and we're going to continue to be there. We're going to be in the metaverse. We're already in the metaverse. I think the challenge right now is as technologies evolve and develop, um, that we work on making those changes so that we don't extend the same racist practices into those new spaces. The other thing that I think when I get this question about what's next for Black Twitter is that I remind people that all of the media forms that we had before today, the major ones have not gone away. We still have radio. We still have print We still have television. We are going to have social media in some way, shape, or form in the future, whether it's this platform or another one. We're still going to be there. They're going to be the folks who just, you know, I'm probably going to be one of them. Like, Twitter is my platform. I don't dig Snapchat. Clubhouse wants too much of my information to use. I'm probably still going to be on Twitter. So Black Twitter, regardless of whether Elon Musk goes through with this purchase or Donald Trump comes back or whatever... You can't outdo black people. We're gonna be wherever we want to be, using the technology the way that we want to use it.
1: Michael, you're always having to reach the people to spread a message, as well. How do you see this? Uh, how do you see this going in the future?
2: Yeah. So I think, you know, it's hard to predict where technology is going. But one thing you know about black people, whether it's music, whether it's poetry, whether it's fighting, whether it's TV, black people are going to find a way. To tell our story to each other, and so wherever it goes, like it's probably going to be somewhere in the metaverse or in the you know the digital reality or virtual reality where like I not know black people might create a Wakanda where white people can't come, and it's really like you know you gotta have one of those tattoos on your lips or <laughs> you know you gotta you know we gotta hear how you sound on the phone before you can talk before you can come in, but wherever it is. Black people are going to be there. Black people are going to lead the way. And then there's going to be some white people on the side trying to get in to the club. And that is the history of media in America. That is the future of media in America and media in the world. Black people are going to transform it into a thing that helps us connect with each other. There's already something
1: starting to happen in the world of, you know, Oculus and Meta. You know, I have a VR headset and There's an app, Altspace VR, where, you know, there's black mixers and talk shows and round tables and debates and relationship talks. So I think as that technology becomes cheaper and easier for people to build and design, then we'll probably see more opportunities for black people in those spaces. This has been a wonderful, wonderful conversation. Thank you all both for coming on and going beyond the scenes with me today. Thank you. Thanks. Listen to The Daily Show Beyond the Scenes on Apple Podcasts, the iHeartRadio app, or wherever you get your podcasts. Jon Stewart is back at The Daily Show, which means he's also back in our ears on The Daily Show Ears Edition podcast. Listen to The Daily Show Ears Edition on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts.